for rock bottom for me was your family's upset, you're in denial, you feel terrible about the things that you've done, you are scared because you don't want to go through the withdrawals so you keep trying to use. The last time I used, I, I overdosed on a bunch of different opiates. As I was at the hospital, I remember coming kind of out of it and you know, being re realizing how lucky I was that the nurse told me I was still alive. And my dad said he was actually relieved that that happened so that way he didn't have to worry. He, he knew that all the truth was gonna come out finally. What do you say, Recovery Nation? It's Full Potential Ted welcoming you to the Full Potential Now Addiction Podcast, where I chat with inspiring people in the recovery world. And if you're thinking of getting help for your addiction, definitely go to fullpotentialnow.org and get a list of treatment centers and therapists near you. And remember, it's never too late to make a new start. Max Cordial was a University of Wisconsin Whitewater baseball player where he became addicted and nearly died from an opiate overdose in 2008. Luckily enough, his dad was able to rush him to the hospital and save his life. Max has continued to follow his passion for baseball into his recovery and is currently the director of team operations at GRB Rays and also a dedicated baseball coach. And now let's chat with our featured amazing guest, Max Cordial. Are you ready to rock, Recovery Nation? Hell yeah. I am here with the one and only Max Cordio. We got Max in the studio with us today. We're going to be covering a lot of ground with him. He's a very interesting guy. And uh, I guess at this point, Max, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, so right now, I'm a uh, biz I own several small businesses i guess you can say um keeps me busy all the time one of them is an indoor baseball facility in which i'm part owner of um it's a brand new state-of-the-art building 3.2 million dollar building with a indoor baseball field and it's it, it keeps us busy we also within that we have 31 baseball teams that i am in charge of practices and hiring the coaches and staffing everything. So as baseball season gets closer, we ramp up quite a bit. So this is more so the, the busy and more stressful time of year for me. So how did you get hooked in to tell us a little bit about your baseball career? Because I've known Max for maybe about a year. He comes in and speaks to my UW-Whitewater class um, about his story. But yeah, I've become more and more fascinated with Max's batting average. When he was uh, playing ball at UW-Whitewater. So, <laughs> what was your batting average? So, it's interesting. My junior year, I hit uh, three, 350 or 3-something. And then you can really tell. Uh, my senior year, when I was actively using quite a bit, my batting average was 242. 242. So, so and I still had some, you know, good games in there. However, um, I didn't reach my potential um, and a lot, a lot of it had to do with the use of drugs not only did 
I never used really when I was or while I was in a game. I didn't use ever when I was in a game. Um, but what I, you know, what it does is it changes your whole mental, your whole mental mindset and stuff. So I wasn't doing the work on my own, you know, hitting and doing different things on my own that normally I would do when I wasn't using, you know, it just kind of changes who you are as a person. And for me, I'm a really hard worker from sunup to sundown. And, and when I was using, as I kept using, that changed more and more. Because it's just the only thing you're focused on is trying to get the drugs, trying to get the pills or whatever, you know, substance that you're into. And for me, um, it was opiates and um, I mixed in quite a few, I guess, um, I don't know what the correct term is for the substance, but it would have been, you know, something, it's an upper like Adderall or cocaine. Okay. So why don't we start there, just kind of about your story and maybe how you got hooked into opiates. Because Max, Max is very interesting from the standpoint that he was an athlete and a fairly successful athlete going along UW-Whitewater and then kind of hits the uh, bump in the road or maybe it's the crater in the road. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it went from a crack to a... Uh basically the end of the world, world in a very short time. Yeah. Um, yeah. So maybe talk just a little bit about, yeah, your story and kind of how you, how you pulled, through, or I guess to start with your story. Well, the first time I remember using was I was uh, 16 years old. I'd got my wisdom teeth taken out and I remember, it's not like I abused it then, but I do remember taking it and having the feeling of basically that euphoric feeling you get when you first try a substance or a drug. And more than less, I was hooked. I didn't know it at the time, but I was hooked on that feeling that I always remember getting the first time I used. And I never used again until I was 20. It was, I think it would have been two or three years, yeah, three years later, when I had to have a hernia surgery after my freshman year of playing baseball. I had to get, I had a hernia surgery, and that was the second time I was used opiates, and I, I used every pain pill that the doctor was able to give me um, while I was going through uh, the recovery from having the hernia surgery. Okay. It's basically two weeks where I used a lot. But again, uh, I didn't know it at the time, but I, you know, I was hooked. But I used within that time frame, and then I didn't use again until almost, it would have been a year and a half later when I was introduced to them recreationally for the first time. And then that's when it kind of all started. It kind of hit something in my head or, you know, that, hey, I can get these whenever I want. And I think that is, uh, that for me, that's what started the progression of my addiction of using more and more. It went really slow from, you know, when I was 21, 22 until I was, you know, done using when I was 24. Um, first time I used recreationally, I knew I could get it basically whenever I wanted, figured out that I can go to the ER. And at that time, that would have been about 2007, 2008. Uh, I, I know that, you know, emergency rooms or urgent care places didn't have the software, or the capability to follow patients like they do now. So you could go from hospital to hospital without any sort of red flags popping up and you could basically, you know, fake an injury and get what you wanted in terms of opiates. 
Yeah, so tell us a little bit about kind of how things progress. And I know Recovery Nation, you know, oftentimes in, in, when people tell their stories, they talk about like this idea of like when, you know, it progresses, then you hit the proverbial rock bottom. And then how do you come out of that? And, and how do you pull yourself up? Yeah, so. I, I think the rock bottom is, I think there's several steps of rock bottom. bottom. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know if mine is any worse or better than anybody else's. It, I know this. It happened really fast. You know, you hear stories of people using not, you know, for 20, forever. And for me, it was a couple of years, and it, it, it ended. It progressed quickly and ended, thankfully, I'm still alive. It didn't, it, it ended, I guess the end story is okay compared to what most people have. But as you go through that phase of using more and more, it slightly starts to change how you are as a person mentally and physically. Um, more mentally, I think, because you're, it's a very dangerous spot when you're first starting to use and get hooked because, yes, you can go several weeks without using because you don't have the physical withdrawals yet, but you always have that in the back of your mind uh, I can get this substance when I want. It feels really good. So after two weeks, hits or whatever it is, you start thinking about it a lot, you act on that thought. And as the disease progresses in you and your mind starts to change, um, you use more and more, I guess, from, you know, it goes from month to month to week to week and then progressively goes into a day-to-day -day thing. You know, and as I was going through college or when I was going through college, you know, slowly I can, I can remember my mindset or my, my mental state of mind changing, you know, I guess each day or each month when I would use, um, because you, one, you're chasing that drug, um, you know, and that's really all you care about. It changes how you are as a person. And for me, baseball is, Something I was good at, something I liked, and that started to be taken away when I was using drugs because you just become more lazy and um, aren't working on things as hard as you should be. And I think the, the biggest thing for me was when I started, as my baseball career ended, as it was starting to end, I used more and more. And as I used more and more, obviously, the more physically and mentally you get addicted to it. And my senior year, I had a, an injury to my arm where I, I didn't necessarily need pain pills, but there was something definitely wrong where I couldn't compete to the fullest. So, you know, I was able to get pills on command from a doctor. And when I was able to get those, I could use them as often as I wanted. And it just became more common when I was done with baseball for me to, because I didn't really have anything else other than I knew I had to finish my degree. There was nothing else really to hold my life together or keep me, um, to make me, my, keep myself accountable. So I would just use a lot of drugs and, you know, eventually it started to be an everyday thing. And by an everyday thing, I mean 20 to 40 pills. So 200 to $400, or, you know, you use heroin, which is, you know, any, again, 200 to $400. And eventually you run through a time where you're running out of money. Mm. Um, and as you run out of money, um, you start finding it in different ways. And for me, it was, 
while taking it out of different places that I had money saved. Um, or, you know, I, I was helping run my dad's bar at the time. I would steal money from him. Um, and as, as you use and go through these things, you feel worse and worse. And, and again, as you use and you feel worse about them, when you start to come off that high, you feel terrible about what you've done. You feel terrible about a person. So then you have to go up and get drugs sooner and sooner, and you have to get more and more because of the, the addiction and how terrible you feel about the different things that you've done, not only to yourself, but people around you that are close to you. And I think, um, you know, that, that was probably the darkest place for me. And, uh, you know, as you get closer to, or for me, as, as closer I got to, um, well, the more I used, the worse it got. And the, to, for rock bottom for me was, you know, you know, your family's upset, you're in denial, you feel terrible about the things that you've done, you are scared because you don't want to go through the withdrawals, so you keep trying to use. And for me, it was a blessing, you know, when I, the last time I used, it ended up being a place, it, it ended up being, um, I, I overdosed on a bunch of different opiates, and <clears throat> I was passed out and on the couch of the house that I had owned at the time, and um, what happened was my roommate found me, then called, you know, my dad and 911, and ended up taking me to uh, the hospital. As I was at the hospital, um, I remember coming kind of out of it and you know, being re realizing how lucky I was that the nurse told me I was still alive. And my dad was there with me and him being, a my dad said he was actually relieved that that happened so that way he didn't have to worry. He, he knew that all the truth was gonna come out finally. And, and he is right, it did. Because when I overdosed that last time, it was on a Thursday. I, uh, I don't want to say cleaned out, but I was um, sobered up for that Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That following Monday, I was lucky enough to get into um, Tolarian, which is actually right over here, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was able to get into an inpatient there 30 days overnight. Um, and that's kind of where my recovery started. And in recovery, in treatment, I should say, um, when I first entered treatment, it was the worst part of, that was the darkest moment coming off that addiction or coming off the physical withdrawals, knowing of all the things that you've done bad, knowing that you're going to be in a place where you don't know for 30 days. Um, and, and it actually makes, it makes, makes you be a better person is, is what thankfully I learned in there. For me, when I was in there, the, the biggest thing that I found and the, the most interesting thing, unfortunately, is I, I had had a really good life up to the point when I started using heavily. A lot of people in treatment had, the only thing that they've known is using and selling and having parents that introduced them to drugs and alcohol at a, at a very young age. Um, I knew where I wanted to get to and I knew what I wanted to I knew where I wanted to go to be happy 
because I had been there before when I was a, when I was younger. So I always kept that in my head and always, when I was in treatment, tried to work myself back to that. And, it, you know, it's a long journey to get there. But what separated me from everyone else, and I'm very fortunate and thankful for this, is, you know, I had a very good support system. Um, a lot of the people, a lot of the other addicts that were in there with me, they didn't have it. Like I had said before, they, you know, the only thing that they know is using. The only thing that they know are, you know, people that are into drugs and dealers and no home life. And just, it's this vicious cycle that they're in. And I was very lucky to have a lot of people around me that wanted me to get to where I knew I wanted to get again. And, um, it, it was, it was not that it was easy, but it was easier for me compared to a lot of people are in there and I realized there that I, how lucky I was yeah you know, because of my support system and because I had had a really good childhood yeah so hello recovery nation on that one um, the importance of relationships and support system as you sort of climb out of the hole yep how valuable that is that it you can't climb out of the hole alone right you need a help in hand and uh, Max is uh, Raising some awareness on that, I absolutely love that. It's like a, a key first move is to try to, even if you have just one person, maybe you're blessed to have 10, but even finding that one person that will support you in getting help is so crucial. Yeah. So you end up in Tolarium. Yep. Residential treatment. Yep. And I, I always like to keep things a little bit real and raw because I know there could be somebody out there, a listener out there that's like maybe stumbled upon the podcast and they're like, hey, I'm an athlete. I identify with Max. Um, I'm not, I may be hooked on opiates, but I'm not sure if I want to get help. So what was the kind of like scariest part about going to treatment? Because you're kind of like, you know, you have almost like a near-death experience. Basically, I mean, did you actually clinically die at some point? Yeah. I mean, my heart had stopped. It had stopped for how long? A um, couple minutes. That is like so yeah. crazy. Did you see any lights or anything like no, that? No, no, nothing <laughs> like that. I'm no. So, um, so, so you kind of like really, I mean, this is like an extraordinary story from the, from the sense that you overdose, almost die, like three days later, you're in like a residential treatment center, like super, I mean, ideally that's the way to do it, but unfortunately our healthcare (laughs) system, um, it's more like, uh, like two weeks later, maybe three weeks later, you'll get into the treatment. Um, so all this kind of hits people when they come in. You know, because you're like dealing with the withdrawal, you're getting over that, and now you're like, oh my, and I gotta, you know, confront my addiction, and I'm going to this like place for 30 days. I did not, most people do not, um, when you're like 17 or 18, dream up this scenario. Like, this is in a life experience I really want to have. Like, yeah. almost die from an opiate addiction. I want to lose all my money and everything. Lose all your have, money. Have my family hate me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's not what we want to like. No, you didn't draw it up. Draw it up. So maybe that person is out there listening, but. What was, like, the scariest part about going to treatment and, and like, that part of things? Because you could have walked out. You didn't have to. Right. No, that's the thing. You don't have to be there. And I I wanted to be there. I I remember the first four or five days it being very difficult. You know, you you try to tell yourself you don't need to be there. And now that you've kind of been sober for a couple days that you can just go and live life like you used to. But you can't. Because of how easy it would be to fall into that vicious cycle again. You basically, when you go in there, I was I was terrified. 
um, just because I didn't know what to expect. Um, the only thing you know is what you see on TV, which is... Celebrity rehab. Yeah, which is not, <laughs> you know, real life. Was there a you know, Dr. Drew sighting? No, and, you know, like Johnny Manziel wasn't there, and, you know, there, you know, no celebrities um, or anything like that. You know, you're in a place that are, you know, the beds are not very comfortable, and the food's not very good. Um, but you learn to live um, the right way again, and, you know, you, you start getting up at the same time every day. You get into a routine of doing certain things during certain times of days, and as you do the, as you set your routine again, um, it makes it easier to uh, get away from the thoughts of using. Um, basically, you you are trying to be a person that is you know um, contributing to society as opposed to you know the other the other option, which is you know being basically a nuisance in society. So, once again, hello, Recovery Nation. Gold Nugget just dropped here. Um, the value of building structure in your life early in recovery and how important that can be to kind of get things back on track. Mm-hmm. Because what was the opposite of that? Well, you have no control. No control. No it's structure. But it's, it's all around the drugs and yep. booze. I mean, it's, it's basically opposite ends. Yeah. Yeah. So then, so, so you settle in, and um, anything that really stands out, like, how long ago was that? Oh, man, so that would have been, it would have been November of 2009. So this is like, you know, scrape out the cobwebs here. It's like eight years ago. Yeah. Anything, so this is eight years later. What do you, is there anything that you really remember about that experience that really made a difference? I mean, obviously a lot of it did. Well, you learn, you learn why, you know, other than you just getting addicted to the drug, you under, you figure out why you use, what, what triggers it. For me, it was, you know, as a young kid, I had really, from a a young kid, even now, now it's under control, but I had really bad anxiety where there were, you know, there were phases where I would go through where I couldn't eat, couldn't sleep, really couldn't sit down. I still can't hold still. I think that's just part of my my personality, but it's it's like having a it's like having like you it's like basically like you drink eight Red Bulls every day is how you feel. Yeah. So you're like, like anxious. Really anxious, really up. on edge for no reason. Okay. And you know, I never in the in my family was, you know, they were never, they didn't really understand, and I didn't either, I didn't even know it existed really as a kid, um, you know, having anxiety or depression issues. For me, clinically, I was very, I was kind of depressed and anxious. And, and the reason, you know, the reason was, is just, there, you don't, I didn't know, but there were different things that triggered it to make more. So anything that I would do that anything, you name anything, I would get anxious over. Okay. And to kind of make myself relax, I found that um, taking opiates, Vicodin, Percocet, whatever it may be, took that away for four hours. So it was like the magic potion you discovered. Right. A whole new way of like a state change. Oh, I can just relax here. Yeah. And that worked for a little bit. And then again, as you do it longer and longer, it 
gets out of hand and you start using every day and obviously eventually lose control of your life. So in treatment, I learned that I was, you know, kind of depressed, um, really high anxiety, and they put me on Effexor, which I'm still on today. Um, and obviously, you know, if I hadn't gone to treatment, which I'm lucky enough I was able to get there without being dead, um, I would have never figured that part out. That part out. So it's almost like the addiction was masking something all along. It rears its ugly head. You deal with it through addiction, but then yep. as you get clean, you're like, wait a second, this actually has been an issue. And we know what the research shows, a recent study in the, uh, from the National Institute of Health, is that f- anywhere between 15 to 70, 70% of the U.S. population has some sort of anxiety disorder. So we kind of think of generalized anxiety, panic disorder, you know, anxiety related to an adjustment reaction, obsessive compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress syndrome. Those are all different ways anxiety manifests itself. Um, but there's a lot of folks out there struggling. And then what we also want to be true is people that are in addiction treatment, 60% of those people or just about um, will have like a dual diagnosis. So they'll have some anxiety and depression. And right. so it's kind of like... Even though we, you know, do all this research on it, it's not like it's like it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that. Wait a second, maybe there was something that led somebody or made somebody more vulnerable to an addiction, right? They had this like anxiety or depression, not feeling great about themselves, that sort of thing. So, um, any advice to that person out there? I mean, let's say one, even if one person listens to this, that's thinking about getting into treatment, any. Words of wisdom because you you've lived it and done it. I think as hard it is as hard as it is to go to treatment that first day. Just under try to think of the long term effect it will have on you if you don't go. Um, you can't change yourself if you don't change. If that makes sense, you have to be able to change several things about your life in order to become the person that you want or become the person that, you know, you need to be without using. And by going into treatment for however long you are able to do so, know that it's the best thing for you. And you learn not only how to cope with the addiction and how to, how to handle it, you learn how to, you know, live life the way that you want to. Mm. It, it may take a long time to get there. It may not. But as long as I think you stay on that path of what they teach you when you're in treatment, you know, I think you're, you'd, be, you'd be most times pretty successful. Pretty successful. So then what happens, so you go to residential treatment, what, was, what did you say, it was 2009? 2000 yep. So yep. 2009. Um, so, you know, you're kind of in the safe confines of the center. There's not too much temptation, that sort of thing. So then you do the 30 days. It sounds like you benefit from it. You get a little, you get better. Yep. And then what happens after you get out and how do you uh, maintain your sobriety? So I think this is probably the most important part or most times when somebody relapses is they feel probably pretty good because they've been sober for a certain amount of time in treatment and, you know, they have a lot of people around them and they don't have a lot of options to use. You go back out in the real world, it's up to you again. And if you don't put yourself in a successful position or a position to be successful, um, everything's going to happen all over again. Um, and you know, for me or for anyone, it was 
you know, knowing where you're going to go to a place where where you're living has to be um, a safe place to live. And it's in a place, you know, for me, it was my parents' house for a while. I lived there for six months before I lived yeah. anywhere else. It, it, not everybody's that's where they should go. It could be a different friend's house that, you know, they know where they're sober or there's a lot of different places, you know, where um, somebody can go in order to, uh, you know, to try to stay sober. Because, again, as soon as you get out of treatment, you're back in the world again where you have to make your own, all of your own decisions. Um, you know, I'm not saying what I did was, was right. I lived with my parents for six months, moved out, um, lived in the house that I owned at the time then. Um, you know, and I slowly just started to do more and more things, I guess, um, okay. on my own as a person and keep myself in a, in a, in a place where I knew I wouldn't be tempted to use, you know, I wouldn't go sit in a bar or anything. So. All right. Um, I have a good, I have a question. So how did, did you get involved in AA or NA? I did. Um, the first two years I was out, I made it, I would go to two meetings a week and I'd work the steps and most people will go to the meetings and stuff for the rest of their life. Now, I'm not saying what I did was, is, it's just a way that it worked for me. And as soon as I got involved a lot in basically what I'm doing now with my job, um, it was necessary for me to do those things. You know, now I'm in a place where I, you know, obviously the addiction's still with me and always will be, but I'm in a place now where, um, I have a lot of things that occupy me and, you know, for me to use again would just be very, very tragic and dumb and not only would I hurt myself, I hurt a lot of people around me because I'm in charge of a lot of different things that need me to be there and need my attention and that, that kind of keeps me away from any kind of temptation to use drugs. Okay. So did you get involved like in... Um, with a sponsor and maybe somebody out there listening because I know just as an alcohol and drug counselor I mean I've seen zillions of people and I, I've always kind of promoted you know obviously uh, sober support systems outside of treatment that could be AA, NA, it could be smart recovery um, etc but it's not for everybody and so I'm always curious about like um, how did you what was your first experience like when you went to your first meeting and did you like connect with it? Was it difficult to connect with? Cause I know people have different experiences. Um, you know, I didn't really have a sponsor. I, I talked to a lot of different people, but, uh, for me it was basically, you know, the, I did a lot of it on my own. For me, I felt more comfortable doing that in on my own. And I would do the steps now. I still talk to a lot of people that I was either in treatment with at the time or people that I met at meetings. Okay. Um, and for me, those first two years, that's that's how I did it and stayed sober. Mm. And it's not like I intentionally stopped going to meetings. I just started not going just because I was doing different things. And, okay. And with my, with my life, so, you know... Whether it would be I would have to coach at a certain time or I'd have to be away in a different state coaching or whatever it is, it, it 
that started to become my recovery. Okay. Is, you know, doing what I love to do and basically, but that's my job, which I'm really lucky to have a job where I, I can do that. Um, but that's how I stayed sober was that. Was okay. What I'm doing now is my recovery. Hello, Recovery Nation. Another value bomb dropped by Max. Um, this idea of going out and finding something that you love to do. So one thing is to be in recovery and have that as an identity. But the other thing is to really live life to its fullest and enjoy life and be happy with what you're doing. So in addition to working a strong recovery program, I think another piece, a real value in what, in what Max is saying is how do you find the thing that you love or things that you love? How do you make life enjoyable that you can laugh and love and have relationships? Yep. Because that's the key. So um, any other words of wisdom you'd have for somebody maybe actively in recovery? I mean, because recovery kind of takes... I guess where I'm going to go with this, I'm just going to go off the cuff here, but... As I've talked to people, everybody kind of thinks like recovery sometimes initially when you get into recovery and you kind of get through the, you know, the, the early recovery stages, it's just kind of like level and it's just going to like ride it out. But the reality is life is filled with ups and downs and it's a bumpy ride. Very, yeah. There's obviously like relapse makes a big bump, but I think there's just bumps of like life just does not travel on a straight line. There's ups and downs. No. And so I'm just curious about like how you've dealt with that and what have you found successful? You know, I mean, it's it, it it still isn't easy, and it's not so much just the addiction. It's not the addiction now. Um, like you said, it's just how do you how do you handle bad situations in life? And for me, it's it's good. I the the part of coaching I love so much is well, one I have a you know I have a, a passion for a s- certain kids that I get to coach, um, but. Dealing, it, it says a lot about you as a person, how you deal with things when things aren't going your way. Um, and I think that shows true character in a lot of people. And you look at any good baseball team, especially baseball teams that I've coached, you know, things aren't always going to go how, you know, they should or you want. Um, how, do you, how do you adjust or how do you change the way you're doing something to better yourself in that situation? So for me, if, you know, you know, for, for example, um, four, four years ago, I would say I got really sick. Um, in like sick, I mean, um, you know, a lot of pain with my throat. Um, my uvula was hanging out of my mouth. Oh, I just, I just had a bad, it was just, just, you know, I don't know why it happened. Yeah. Um, but I went to the doctor, you know, like anyone would if that happened, and um, yeah, I was out of work for two weeks because of how swollen my, my glands were and the uvula thing, and, you know, and I could have gotten pain pills that way. I could have easily gotten them. I cho- you know, I, didn't, I never asked for them. I actually told them I didn't want to use them. Um, but, again, why I brought this up is, so it brought up a time where I was not able to work for two weeks. So what do you, how do you handle that? you know, then you, you know, you come back to reality when you're coming, you know, you start to become healthy again. Okay. You didn't work for two weeks. And at that time we were doing okay as a business, but it's not like I was making a ton of money at the time. So how do you, how do you handle that? 
you know, how do you, how do you figure it out? And I can't even explain how I figured it out, but I, I, I did. Um, yeah. I was able to pay my bills. I was able to, um, come back to a position where, you know, I was started to become healthy without having to change what I was doing so much. What was the thing that made you not go back to, to use it? I mean, so, and I'll always say this, um, how I made people around me feel, my family, because mm. I've always been really close with them, how I made the people that were closest around me feel when I was using. There was no more relationship when I was using with them. There was no honesty in things that I would say. So remembering those things and how terrible they are and having the relationship I have with them now, I don't want to ever go down the road of where I was when I was using. So really... Uh Another huge uh, value bomb for Recovery Nation is like remembering like the state you were in and not wanting to go back there. Yes. And wanting to continue to kind of foster and nurture those great relationships now that you've developed. Mm-hmm. Awesome advice. Awesome advice. Do you have any um, resources, any books that you would recommend to our audience or podcasts or you know audio books I mean there's so much you know for me I'm uh, I love sports yeah um, even now still I, I've seen so many different I've read and seen and watched and so many different stories about athletes that have used drugs and half of them find their way back on recovery and half of them don't but for me, it's almost like going to a meeting every time I watch one of those. And I watch one at least once a week okay. just because I can relate to being an athlete and I can relate to what they go through on a daily basis. And it's interesting to see how they come out of it or how they don't come out of it. Okay. Um, and it's, it's actually it's quite interesting, but one common theme is... Um, Nobody's going to stop using until they're ready or until something tragic may happen. Um, for, you know, for me, I, I knew I wanted to stop using months before I was actually done using. Trying to find a way, you know, before something tragic happens is a really hard way to try to get into recovery. But that's something that uh, if somebody really wants to have help, People need to know that there's people out there that don't judge the situation that you're currently in or what you've done and trust what those people are telling you to make yourself better. Awesome words of wisdom. Awesome. I love that. I love that. So listen to that. Soak that in. Well, we want to thank you, Max, for coming on today. Um, Tons of uh, words of wisdom here. His story is quite remarkable. He comes from an athlete perspective. But wow, um, a lot of parallels, very similar parallels to anybody who's kind of going through recovery or thinking about it. Yep. Overcoming addiction. So we uh, salute you and thank you, Max, for coming on. Thanks for having me. And here's a glimpse into next week's podcast episode. What did? What, what, what within you made you commit to it? I... Uh... I remember I ran away to Montana after the suicide attempt and after God told me I'd be a pastor. I went out there for two years and I came back. I was going to finish up my plumbing apprenticeship. Couldn't get a job. I retook my test. I passed, but I couldn't get a job. 
and then we did a we did a fundraiser for a young man, 27 years old, died of brain cancer. His wife is absolutely beautiful. So I took it upon myself to hit on her. I grabbed the microphone from the DJ and in front of all his family, in front of him, in front of my friends, and I hit on this woman. And I drove home and I don't remember driving home and I got up the next day and I just remember getting on my knees, knowing something bad was happening. I said, God, you gotta help me. I can't live my life like this anymore.